Well, hello, church. Happy Sabbath. It's good to see everybody. Um, today we're going to be doing a sermon about the Church of Revelation. Um, about 13 years ago, I did a single sermon where I covered all seven churches, and we didn't even begin to touch the, you know, the details of what was happening. So what I've been doing is doing a series of, of single sermons over each church. Um, and today we're on Philadelphia, which is the sixth of the churches. And next, uh, in the next sermon, we'll be doing Laodicea, which is the church of our time, which is um, pretty a pretty pitiful state. But this church is about the church of Philadelphia. This is one of the two churches that the Lord didn't have anything negative to say about. So this was a very special um, church um, of the group. Uh, I just had dental surgery, so I recruited my cavalry to come up here. My youth and my uh, young adults that I'm very proud of, um, they've done many sermons uh, with me in the past. So today we're going to, this is going to be a collaborative effort. Um, I've done, I did one sermon also over the John of Patmos, uh, when he was on Patmos. So if you want to go back on our YouTube channel and watch these other sermons, we going to go into more detail. You can go to our YouTube channel and you can go and look for May 8th. Um, of 22, July the 2nd of 22, August 6th of 22, and November 5th of 22. And then we did two already this year, which was January 1st of 23 and April 22nd of 23. And there's a, there's a playlist where you can watch each um, sermon of, uh, in, in, in the series. Okay, so if my speech gets slurry, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, just let me know and I'll try to slow down, but um, that, that's what's going on with me right now. Okay, so let's get started. So the significance of the letters. So when you go to Revelation, one of the first prophecies that you're going to read about are the seven churches of Revelation. And the significance is that although these letters were written to churches that actually existed at the time that it was, the letters were written, there also were a prophecy of the time periods from Christ's time to the end of time, to, the, uh, to our time that is right now. And so, and each church had its own message that the Lord was speaking to. And when when people are asking for proof and they're asking for evidence that the, the, that the scripture is real and true, the prophecies line up perfectly with these churches. This is just one evidence of that the Bible is true if they're looking for evidence and proof. All right, so if you're wondering at what part of the world um, we're dealing with here, if you know where the Mediterranean Sea is, this is this is the, the area of the world where um, where these these uh, churches are located. And so, if you look, um, it's in the area of Iran, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the Jordan, Israel, that part of the world. And um, if you look on the coast here, you'll see that uh, Ephesus, Laodicea, Smyrna. Uh, Philadelphia, you'll see in, uh, in, in present-day Turkey, this is where the churches actually existed. Okay, what I'm going to do for t- just to keep time, I'm going to go light on the, um, the, back, the backdrop of the other churches so that we have more time for this church. Because this church is actually very special to all of us. Because out of this church was birthed our church, the Seventh-day Adventist church. And other denominations, but primarily this was the church that came out of this, uh, this the present day churches that came out of this movement. 
And the movement um, was the great disappointment of 1844, uh, for those who don't know. Now, many of us, most of us, Seventh-day Adventists know the story of how this church came to be. But there's a lot of people who don't know the history. So that's what we're going to go over today is about Ellen G. White, and specifically Ellen G. White, because she was of this time. This was her time period. Gives a great account of what happened um, to fulfill this prophecy. And so, um, so to quickly just go over the other churches, the Church of Ephesus was the first church. This was the church of John's time. This was right after Christ had gone back um, to heaven. And this was that church period that was, had the first love of Christ. Because they had all, they had all seen Christ and experienced um, Christ and all the goodness that he brought to the world. And this was the church that had that first love. But they were warned that they need to uh, keep their first love. And in that sermon, we talked about as Christians, do you still have your first love? And if you don't, how do you get it back? And that's what that sermon was about. The next church is the Church of Smyrna, which is from 100 A.D. to around uh, 13 A.D. And this was the church that was persecuted by the Roman Emperor Diocletian. And it was 10 years, it cultivated in 10 years of severe persecution where Christians were brought into the, 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 the great arenas and they were martyred. They, were, they sent lions and gladiators and all kinds of creative ways to, to martyr these Christians. And this was that time period. But, this, the, but these Christians, they, they had found their first love and they remained faithful to God. The next church was the Church of Pergamos. And that was from around 313 A.D. to 538 A.D. And this was the time when when Satan realized through persecution he was not going to eliminate the Christians. So he flipped the script and he made Christianity popular and made it the official religion of Rome. And this is when Constantine came onto the picture and he mixed paganism and Christianity together. And made it popular, but at the same time, it made the true believers and the true Christians, the people who were truly trying to follow Christ, have to go into hiding because they were now going against the popular the, the popularity of the combina- combination of Christianity and paganism. And out of that church came the church of uh, Theratira. I'm, no, I'm sure I'm saying that right. But that was from around 538 A.D. to 1517 A.D. And this was the church during the Dark Ages. This is the time period when uh, the Catholic Church, and, I, and, I, and it, this is nothing against the Catholic Church, this is just history, basically tried to take away the word of the God by destroying Bibles and, and made it illegal for people, common people to own the Bible. And you had to go to the church and to the, to the bishops and to the priests in order to gain salvation, to get the truth. And that's why it's also the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages is referred to as the Dark Ages because it was a period of darkness. And the church had to flee into the mountains to escape persecution. And, and there's, you could do weeks and weeks and weeks of sermons over um, this time period because it, it was, so much happened. But it was, a, it was a time period of persecution for the church in the wilderness, like the wildernesses that kept the Bible and that kept the truth alive. And then we get to the Church of Sardis, the church right before Philadelphia. And this is the time period from 1517 A.D. to 1820 A.D. And this was the time of the Reformation. Once again, it, start, it starts to become more popular 
as knowledge starts to increase, as the printing press brings back the Bible and 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 the work, the uh, the church starts to grow outside of the of the Roman Catholic Church. But we they started to um, compromise because they wanted peace. They were tired of being persecuted. So this church is the time of the Reformation. And it is out of this church that Philadelphia comes out of. Because a lot of people don't understand, uh, don't realize that the Seventh-day Adventist church didn't exist until this point. The Seventh-day Adventist church was born out of Baptists and Lutherans and Methodists and all the churches across the globe. People are people coming together when they realize and we're reading the scriptures to understand that something of significance was about to happen. Unfortunately, they misunderstood what that was. They thought it was the second coming of Christ. They did not understand that this was Christ going into the most holy place to start the judgment of people. And so, for time purposes, we're going we're gonna to jump right into that time period so we can see what was happening. Because it's very interesting when you really believe that the if you really believe the Lord was coming back like tomorrow, what would you do? Have you ever thought about that? If you knew if you even knew you were just going to die today or tomorrow, what would you do? How would you spend your last hours? How would you do? Would it be spent in in, in a pleasure seeking, or would it be in deep prayer and communion with God and trying to get yourself right? This was what actually was happening. At this in this church, because when they realized that the time was near and they thought he was about to come back, you begin to see this divergence of true believers and non-believers. People, I'm, I'm not, we're not talking about people who don't believe. The of the believers, the people who believed in Jesus Christ and loved Jesus Christ, you see this divergence of people who actually do love him and those who don't. And there's a separating of the two. So. Let's go ahead and get into it, um, to this church here. So we're gonna, I'm going to start by reading the actual scripture. And this is Revelation 3, verses 7 and 9, if you want to open up your Bibles. Revelation chapter 3, 7 through 9. I'll give you just a second. But this is what's happening. And this church and all of us, we are living in the last days. This is what we are to be doing right now. Because, first of all, we don't know the day or the hour that we might just pass away. But the second thing is, we don't know the day or the hour that the Lord is going to return. And we know that it is near. So, we need to pay attention to these Christians because, like I said, this is one of the two churches. The other being Smyrna, where he didn't have anything negative to say. All right. And it reads, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that open it and no man shut it, and shut it and no man open it. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them in the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Revelations 3, 7, and 9. And we're going to read the rest of that here in just a minute. Philadelphia means 
brotherly love. And this is one of the churches that Jesus has nothing bad to say about. This is another place where we see that the the heaven does not look at things that the way we do. No history book made by man would have declared that the Advent movement and the Millerites of the 1830s through 1844 were the true church for that time. But this is exactly what we see in this message. Here again, we see false Christians that say they were Jews and are not. They were the ones in the popular churches who rejected the message from heaven about the end of the great prophecy of the 2300 days in 1844. In the Sardis church, Jesus warned that most of the church was dead and ready to die or ready to die spiritually. Now, most of the church uh, had become fallen and, be- and become the synagogue of Satan. As they rejected the message of Jesus soon coming, they showed they did not truly love Jesus. And Satan came in with his ways and they welcomed him. The true believers went through hard times as they were scorned and cast out of their churches and even sometimes their families for believing in Jesus soon coming. But Jesus says, don't worry, I have given you an open door and nobody can shut it. This was the door to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. The great day of atonement had begun in heaven and most of the so-called Christian world couldn't have cared less. The Advent believers were disappointed terribly when Jesus did not come to earth on October 22nd, 1844. But they were thrilled later to learn about the door opened the, the, um, the door opening in heaven and how they could be by faith see Jesus um, as he did the work of deciding whose names would be left in the book of life and to go to heaven with him when he returns. Soon the people who are alive on earth will be judged. This will happen as they decide whether they will obey God's word and the commandments or obey what men tell them to do and disobey God. And so let's read Revelations 3, 10 and 11. This is the next part of that verse. 10 and 11. Because I have kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come unto all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, and hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Notice here, Jesus talks about his soon coming. He is encouraging the little group who clung to the Bible truth they had learned and knew um, it showed his coming was near. They patiently kept studying after the great disappointment when they thought Jesus was coming, going to come on October 22, 1844, and he didn't. Because of their patience and faith in his word, soon further study and the guidance of the Holy Spirit brought them to the truth about the cleansing of the sanctuary and the final work for man being done in the heavenly sanctuary. And so this was the promise which you can find in Revelation 3, 12 and 13. This is the last part of this, uh, of this scripture. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of God, and he shall no, go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revelations 12, 3, 12, 13. So basically, also there was, there was this thing that was happening was there was a lot of people who were um, fervently trying to get right with the Lord, but they were only doing it out of fear. And when the disappointment happened, when he did not come, then you see even more people start to diverge from the true church because they, they, at that point they realized he wasn't coming and then they went back to actually how they really felt about it. And so it is amazing how God can separate 
separate true believers from false believers. And it's usually done through a period of persecution because these Christians were actually being persecuted by their own families and their own churches for believing that the Lord was coming back, which they all knew was he was eventually going to come back. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to go through that experience of what was happening and we're going to um, let Ellen G. White tell the story of what was happening in 1844. All right. All right. A great religious awakening under the proclamation of Christ's soon coming is foretold in the prophecy of the first angel's message of Revelation 14. An angel is seen flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. With a loud voice he proclaims the message, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. The fact that an angel is said to be the herald of this warning is significant. By the purity, the glory, and the power of the heavenly messenger, divine wisdom has been placed to represent the exalted character of the work to be accomplished by the message and the power and the glory and that were to attend it. And the angel's flight, in the midst of heaven, the loud voice with which the warning is uttered and its proclamation to all that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Give evidence of this rapidity and worldwide extent of the movement. The message itself sheds light as to the time when this, motiv- when this movement is to take place. It is declared to be part of the everlasting gospel, and it announces the opening of the judgment. The message of salvation has been preached in all ages, but this message is a part of the gospel which could be proclaimed only in the last days. For only then would it be true that the hour of judgment had come. The prophecies present a succession of events leading down to the opening of the judgment. This is especially true of the book of Daniel. But that part of of his prophecy which related to the last days, Daniel was bidden too close up and sealed to the time of the end. Not till we reach this time could a message concerning the judgment be proclaimed based on the fulfillment of these prophecies. But at the time of the end, says the prophet, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Daniel 12.4 The Apostle Paul warned the church not to look for the coming of Christ in his day. That day shall not come, he says, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. Second Thessalonians 2.3 Not till after the great apostasy and the long period of reign of the man of sin can we look for the advent of our Lord. The man of sin, which is also styled the mystery of iniquity, the son of perdition, and that wicked, represents the papacy, which has foretold in prophecy, was to maintain its supremacy for 1260 years. This period ended in 1798. The coming of Christ could not take place before that time. Paul covers with his with his caution the whole the whole of the Christian dispensation down to the year seventeen ninety eight. 
It is this side of that time that the message of Christ's second coming is to be proclaimed. No such message has ever been given in the past ages. Paul, as we have seen, did not preach it. He pointed his brethren into the far distant future for the coming of the Lord. The reformers did not proclaim it. Martin Luther placed the judgment about 300 years into the future from his day. But since 1798, the book of Daniel has been unsealed. Knowledge of the prophecies has increased, and many have proclaimed the solemn message of the judgment near. Like the Great Reformation of the 16th century, the Advent movement appeared in different countries of Christendom at the same time. In both Europe and America, men of faith and prayer were led to study of the prophecies, and tracing down the inspired record, they saw conceiving evidence that that the end of all things was at hand. In different lands, there were, there were isolated bodies of Christians who solely by the study of the scriptures arrived at the belief that the Savior's advent was near. So what was significant about that is that he, God told Daniel to seal the book. And it wasn't until the time of, of this, of this uh, prophecy um, where they too, the knowledge was going to be widespread and the study of this, um, the study was going to proliferate around the world. And so the prophecy is saying until this time comes, we're not going to truly understand the moment. And then, as you can see, like the, even the disciples did not really preach on this because they knew that this was not for their time. Even Martin Luther had projected it 300 years into the future. But when the time came, that's when the knowledge began to proliferate and the study and the, and the movement began, which is just further evidence that this was a, a true prophecy coming true. In 1821, three years after Miller had arrived at his exposition of the prophecies pointing to the time of the judgment, Dr. Joseph Wolfe, the missionary to the world, began to proclaim the Lord's soon coming. Wolfe was born in Germany, of Hebrew parentage, his father being a Jewish rabbi. While very young, he was convinced of the truth of the Christian religion, of an active, inquiring mind. He had been an eager listener to the conversations that took place in his father's house as the view Hebrews daily assembled to recount the hopes and anticipations of their people, the glory of the coming Messiah, and the restoration of Israel. While Wolf accepted the great truth of Christ's first advent as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he saw that the prophecies being bring to view with equal clearness his second advent with power and glory. And while he sought to lead his people to Jesus of Nazareth as the promised one and to point them in his first coming in humiliation as a sacrifice for the sins of men, he taught them also of his second coming as a king and deliverer. Wolf believed the coming of the Lord to be at hand, his interpretation of the prophetic periods placing the great consummation within very few years of the time pointed out by Miller. During the 24 years from 1821 to 1845, Wolf traveled extensively in Africa, visiting Egypt and Abyssinia, in Asia, traversing Palestine, Syria, Persia, Bukhara, and India. 
He also visited the United States on the journey preaching on the island of St. Helena. Dr. Wolf traveled in the most barbarous countries without the protection of any European authority, enduring many hardships and surrounded with countless perils. He was whipped and starved, sold as a slave, and three times condemned to death. He was beset by robbers and sometimes nearly perished from thirst. Once he was stripped of all that he possessed and left to travel hundreds of miles on foot through the mountains, the snow beating on his face and his naked feet benumbed by contact with the frozen ground. Thus, he was preserved in his labors until the message of the judgment had been carried to a large part of the habitable globe. Among Jews, Turks, Pharisees, Hindus, and many other nationalities and races, he distributed the word of God in these various tongues and everywhere heralded the approaching reign of the Messiah. So one other thing that was happening was the word had to be spread across the globe to all nations um, and tongues. And so you start to see these um, these preachers and pastors and missionaries start to spread this message across the globe. Um, And in his next part, he's going to read about just some of the places where this was happening. And it was all happening around the same time, which is, if you think about in, in the 1800s, there's no Internet. There's no way to to coordinate such anything. So this was all happening independent of each other, but all in unison with the same message. A similar belief was founded by another missionary to exist in Tartary. A Tartar priest put the question to the missionary as to when Christ would come the second time. The missionary answered that he knew nothing about it. The priest seemed great seemed greatly surprised at such ignorance in one who professed to be a Bible teacher. Instead, his own belief, founded on prophecy that Christ would come about 1844. As early as 1826, the Advent message began to be preached in England. The message here did not take so definite a form as in America. The exact time the Advent was not generally so generally taught, but the great truth of Christ's soon coming in power and glory was extensively proclaimed. In South America, in the midst of barbarism and priestcraft, Lacunza, a Spaniard and Jesuit, found his way to the scriptures and thus received the truth of Christ's speedy return. Impelled to give the warning yet desiring to escape the censures of Rome, he published his views under the assumed name of Rabbi Ben Ezra, representing himself as a converted Jew. In Scandinavia, also the Advent message was proclaimed, and widespread interest was kind-led, Many were roused from their careless security to confess and forsake their sins and seek pardon in the name of Christ, but the clergy of the church of the state church opposed the movement. And through their influence, some who preached the message were thrown into prison in many places where the preachers of the Lord's soon coming were thus silenced. God was pleased to send the message in a miraculous manner through little children. As they were underage, the law of the state could not restrain them, as they were permitted to speak unmolested. If you go into uh, the Great Controversy, Chapter 20, this is where this is found. I took out a lot of stuff here just for time purposes. But one thing I found very interesting was that these preachers and the Lord would use children to spread the message. Because, and like like he was just reading, because they were underage, they could do it unmolested 
from persecution, whereas the adults couldn't. And in several places, you will find that their children were the ones that were going out as as the missionaries and and and, and spreading the gospel. So there's, this is heavenly. This is divinely being inspired to um, by people around the world. All right. Like I said, I cut a lot out. If you want to read this, go to chapter 20 of the Great Controversy. And then finally, we go here to William Miller. Um, and this is this is back here in America. And to William Miller and his collaborators, it was given to preach the warning in America. This country became the center of the great Advent movement. It was here that the prophecy of the first angel's message had its most direct fulfillment. The writings of Miller and his associates were carried to distant lands. Wherever missionaries were, had penetrated in all the world were sent the glad tidings of Christ's speedy return. Far and wide spread the message of the everlasting gospel. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The testimony of the prophecies which seemed to point to the coming of Christ in the spring of 1844 took um, deep hold of the minds of the people. As the message went from state to state, there were Everywhere awakened widespread interest. Many were convinced that the arguments from the prophetic periods were correct and sacrificing their pride and opinion, they joyfully received the truth. Some ministers laid aside their secretarian views and, and feelings, left their salaries and their churches and united in proclaiming the coming of Jesus. There were comparatively few ministers, however, who would accept this message. Therefore, it was largely committed to humble laymen. The condition of ungodly church and a world lying in wickedness burdened the souls of the true watchmen, and they willingly endured toil, privation, and suffering that they might call men to repentance unto salvation. Though opposed by Satan, the work went steadily forward, and the advent truth was accepted by many thousands. Sinners inquired with weeping, what must I do to be saved? Those who li- whose lives had been marked with dishonesty were anxious to make restitution. All who found peace in Christ longed to see what others um, share the ble- to see others share the blessing. The hearts of parents were turned to their children, and the hearts of children to their parents. The barriers of pride and reserve were swept away. Heartfelt confessions were made, and the members of the household labored for the salvation of those who were nearest and dearest. Often was heard the sound of earnest intercession. Everywhere were souls in deep anguish pleading with God. Many wrestled all night in prayer for the assurance that their own sins were pardoned or for the conversion of their relatives or neighbors. All classes flocked to the Adventist meetings. Rich and poor, high and low, were from various causes anxious to hear for themselves the doctrine of the second advent. The Lord held the spirit of opposition in check while his servants explained the reasons of their faith. Sometimes the instruments were feeble, but the spirits of God gave power to his truth. The presence of the holy angels were felt in these assemblies, and many were daily added to the believers. As the evidence of Christ's soon coming was repeated, vast crowds listened in breathless silence to the solemn words. Heaven and earth seemed to approach each other. The power of God was felt upon old and young and middle age. Men sought their homes with praises upon their lips, and the glad sang, um, sound rang out upon the still midnight air. None who attended those meetings can ever forget those scenes of deep, deepest interest. The most humble 
and devoted in the churches were usually the first to receive the message. Those who studied the Bible for themselves could not but see the unscriptural character of the popular views of prophecy. And when and wherever the people were not con- controlled by the influence of the clergy, wherever they would search the word of God for themselves, the Advent doctrine needed only to be compared with the scriptures to establish its divine authority. Many were persecuted by their unbelieving brethren. In order to retain their position in the church, some consented to be silent in regard to their hope. But others felt that loyalty to God forbade them thus to hide the truths which he had committed to their trust. Not a few were cut off from the fellowship of the church for no other reason than expressing their belief in the coming of Christ. Angels of God were watching with the deepest interest um, the result of the warning. When there was a general rejection of the message by the churches, angels turned away in sadness. But there were many who had not yet been tested in regard to the Advent truth. Many were misled by husbands, wives, parents, or children, and were made to believe it a sin even to listen to such heresies as taught by the Adventists. Angels were bidden to keep faithful watch over these souls, for another light was yet to shine upon them from the throne of God. With unspeakable desire, those who had received the message watched for the coming of their Savior. The time when they expected to meet him was at hand. They approached this hour with a calm solemnity. They rested in sweet communion with God and earnest of the peace that was to be theirs in the bright hereafter. None who experience this hope and trust can forget those precious hours of waiting. For some weeks preceding the time, worldly business was the most part laid aside. The sincere believers carefully examined every thought and emotion of their hearts as if upon their deathbeds and in a few hours to close their eyes upon the earthly scenes. There was no making of ascension roads, but all felt the need of internal evidence that they were prepared to meet the Savior. Their white robes were purity of soul, characters cleansed from sin by the atoning blood of Christ. With that, there still were the professed people of God, the same spirit of heart-searching, the same earnest, determined faith. God designed to prove his people, though. All, his hand covered a mistake in the reckoning of the prophetic periods. Adventists did not discover the error, nor was it discovered by the most learned of their opponents. The latter said, reckoning of the prophetic periods is correct. Some great event is about to take place, but it is not what Mr. Miller predicts. It is the conversion of the world and not the second advent of Christ. The time of expectation passed, and Christ did not appear for the deliverance of his people. Those who were with sincere faith and love had looked for their Savior, experienced a bitter disappointment. Yet the purposes of God were being accomplished. He was testing the hearts of those who professed to be waiting for his appearing. There were many among them who had been actuated by no higher motive than fear. Their profession of faith had not affected their hearts or their lives. When the expected event failed to take place, those persons declared that they were not disappointed. They had never believed that Christ would come. They were among the first to ridicule the sorrow of the true believers. But Jesus and all the heavenly hosts looked with love and sympathy upon the tried and faithful yet disappointed ones. Could the veil separating the visible world have been swept back, angels would have been seen drawing near to these steadfast souls and shielding them from the shafts of Satan. So, if you go by that account, these Christians, they were deeply searching their souls, trying to find any evidence of unrepentance and get rid of it. They were trying to get prepared. They thought he was coming back. But guess what? He is coming back. And we're very, very close. You can see this world literally falling apart. 
So maybe we should be doing what they did now. But that is not what's happening because there is still another church that just spoke of, and it is the church of Laodicea. And that is the church of today. I, f- I found this picture, and, and I'm going to read this because I, I just thought this was really interesting. And I believe this is true. I don't believe this is fake. I waited all Tuesday, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited for the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was. But after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint, and before dark, I needed someone to help me up to my chamber. As my natural strength was leaving me very fast, and I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. They were... I don't think we understand the level of disappointment that they that they had. Think about all the pains and the suffering and the, the sacrifices and the people you've lost and wanting a better life. And this is back in the 1800s. They didn't have all the comforts that we had. And they felt like their time to be in heaven, to escape this life had come. And they were ready to go. But they but the time was not yet. These people were crushed. They were crushed. And then on top of that, you have the outside, the first, the, out, the other Christians in the popular churches ridiculing them. These are the people who had cast them out of their own churches and sometimes their families. And then you have the outer world who's mocking them, laughing at them because, of, because this was, because it didn't happen. These people were really crushed. But they remained faithful. Because they didn't just stop right there. They went back and they studied and realized, oh, not the second coming. It is the time of the atonement. He's going into the most holy place to start the judgment, the cleansing of the sanctuary. And rather than just to let all that heartfelt um, self-reflection go away, they remain committed. This is why The Lord didn't have anything negative to say about this church because they remain faithful and their patience. That's why uh, if you read the scripture, it says, if I can find it right quick. Here we go. He them that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh... um, out of the out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon his name him my new name, him that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revelation twelve thirteen. He wanted them to he was testing them because he wanted to separate the, the ones that were calling themselves Jews but were not. This was another period where people were claiming to be Christians, claiming to be followers of Christ, but they really were not. And so when this happened then the, the, the shaft was uh, separated from the wheat, and you have this little group, this group of people who, who had read the scriptures, and they believed what the Lord was saying. And this is where the Seventh-day Adventist church was born out of. All of the churches, all of the Re- uh, Reformation, this group of people coming together to worship the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is what the Adventist, that's what it means, the advent of uh, Jesus' coming. That is where this church came out of, which is why this is a special one to us, particularly, but not just to us, because this isn't just for the seven day Adventist church. This is for the whole world. And in that message, we have now spread the gospel across the world into every 
country and to every tribe. Now it's just a matter of people making a decision. Who are you going to follow, Christ or man? That is where, that's where we're at. So many times we do evangelism, and it doesn't seem to bear any fruit. But it's not because people are not aware of Jesus Christ and God. It's because they have just made a decision. That is what's the disappointing of our time. People have just made a decision. So what we have to do is find those people who are still trying to make a decision. And to spread that gospel and to get them the real truth and the good words of Jesus Christ so that they can make a decision. Because when, when the time comes and the time of the end comes, what that's going to be about is who are you going to obey? God or man? When they make those decrees on which day you're going to worship, Sunday or on the Sabbath, you just got to make a decision. The Lord or man, who do you fear? That's, that's where we're at. Make a decision. Sadly, we have to go into the church of Laodicea. It is the most pitiful of all the churches. It really is. It's really, really sad. I've done sermons about the condition of the church, the declining, the literal dying of the church, where the baby boomers and the, and the, and the, and the generation before them, their mothers and fathers, as they die out, you see the, 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 the decline of the church. You can see it in the, the, in the stats. If the Lord doesn't come back, there won't be anybody left. That's where we're at. That's why you know it's close. Because he's never going to allow this world to not have his church on it. He's made that promise. So, thank you for listening to this. This, this, this story of what happened is very special to us because we are the Seventh-day Adventist church. But there's a lot of Seventh-day keeping churches out there. There's a lot of people out there who don't belong to churches, but they still love the Lord and are trying their best. We've got to find a way to unite all of us together, which will be called the remnant church, the last church on earth. And together, we, got, we need to spread this gospel. We need him to come back because I think all of us are tired. We're tired of this, this pain. And, I, and the other thing is everything we experience, he experiences. I imagine he's tired. He's tired of watching all of us cry. That's what's, that's what's happening. He's tired of, tired of watching you lose loved ones. That's right. And finally, he's just going to say, enough. I've had enough. It's time to bring my reward. Okay, so we're going to end this on a positive note, though. We still have time. <laughs> That's what he's doing. He's postponing to give us time. So if you're not right, we can do like they did. Turn the TVs off. Go home and pray. And get right with the Lord. We have time. That is the great message that came out of this. All right, if you'll bow your heads, let's say a word of prayer. Lord, as we went over this sermon, it is amazing to see your people come together. And what can happen when we truly believe that our time is near. But our time is near, Lord. So I ask that you give us all the courage 
to stop playing around with this thing, to stop postponing and making plans for the future that we're not guaranteed. Show us, Lord. Show us what we need to do to get right with you. Who do we need to talk to and settle old differences to set aside and place all of the sins that we've committed on the altar, Lord? Show us how to become holy, not just Christians, but priests and priestesses, people willing to sacrifice everything if need be to spread this gospel and to end this suffering, Lord. Lord, you promised us that you would give us the power and the words to speak in that time. And the time is now. So, Lord, we ask for your power. We ask for your love and your mercy and your empathy. And, Lord, we are sorry for prolonging this thing out for for the way we have. So, Lord, we just ask for your Holy Spirit and to change us so that we can go home and be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.